Welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. We hope today's message encourages you and strengthens your walk with God. Enjoy the message. Uh, We're going to jump into Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. We're reading out of the New Living Translation tonight. It reads this. It says, after telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. He said, go into that village over there, he told them. And as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one, come on, someone say no one, that no one has ever ridden. Imagine you are a donkey and your first rider is going to be the son of God, right? Talk about learning on the job, right? Uh, But a donkey that had never been ridden before. He said, untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, they were untying it, and the owners asked him, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. Let me say this. Do not overuse that, all right? Uh, excuse. You, I think you can only really use it once, maybe twice. So, so they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. And as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all his followers began to shout. Come on, somebody say shout. They began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who had come, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into chairs. Come on, don't let a stone take your place. Come on, let's give Jesus a shot of praise tonight if we know he is the true king. What we're going to talk about tonight is this, is the declaration of dominion. A declaration of dominion. Let's pray over the service together tonight. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in this house. Right now, we, God, just dedicate this service to you. We break every distraction, God. We break any any weapon of the enemy. But God, we say, let your truth be said, God, and let your truth be heard. And Father, we thank you for open minds and soft hearts that we're ready, God, to, God, just jump into your word and, God, to go into your presence, Father, for you to transform us from the inside out. So have your way tonight, Jesus. We thank you for miracles, signs, and wonders. We thank you, God, for your will taking place. And we thank you, Father, that we're going to leave this house better than what we came. We love you, Jesus. And everybody says, amen, amen. Come on, give Jesus a hand clap of praise. And y'all can be seated. Y'all can be seated. Really, there's only one way I can think in my life where I can relate uh, to a keenly entrance. And the only way that I have ever related to that moment um, was when I have been part of bridal parties. Ever been part of a bridal party and it's the, you know, the after party or whatever they call it. Um, and they like announce the whole bridal party and they call it like the grand entrance. And, and usually they like, you know, the, they'll have all the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, you know, paired up, go together and they call out the names. And then um, if you're cool, you're supposed to have a dance, right? Like a mini dance you do out there to entertain the crowd. If you're cool. Um, 
But uh, uh, I always got nervous about that because if you don't know, my wife definitely does, I can't dance. And so she would try to come up with this, you know, always this little mini dance routine, and I'm always just like, babe, this is all I'm going to do. You know, that's all I'm going to do right there. And you do what you want to do, but that's all I can do. Um, so I've been part of, you know, a few bridal parties and had that grand entrance. But I remember when Haley and I had, uh, when, we had when we got married, we had our wedding, we had our grand entrance. And, you know, the bride and the groom, they're the last ones to be announced, right? And, uh, uh, and I remember, you know, we were looking at each other ready. I, I, I forgot what even dance we had. Um, but I remember we were getting ready for them to announce uh, our name, and, you know, for the first time. And we present you, Mr. and Mrs. Caleb Slavic, right, and they all go wild, and so we're about ready for them to announce us, and then I remember um, that right as he was announcing our name, my uncle, who just used the restroom, was exiting the restroom, and how those, uh, how our venue uh, was set up is that the restrooms were out on the outside, so you had to enter again once you used the restroom, and, and I remember they, they said, oh, I would like y'all to present uh, Mr. and Mrs. Caleb Slavic, and everybody's cheering, and my uncle walks out. And everybody's like, what's going on? And, you know, and he walks out, and he just, like, kind of played with it, started dancing a little bit. Um, but I remember that. I said, man, we messed it up, and then we rushed out there, had our little routine. But that's about the closest I can relate to a keenly entrance. And uh, when I studied this and saw where they, these Romans took it from, and because uh, the Roman Empire are actually the ones who implemented these uh, keenly entrances because they had to think of a way uh, to relate to the nations that they conquered. They had to think of a way to show them uh, their authority, their power, and their strength. And so what they would do is that once they conquered a nation, they would have this keenly entrance and their, the, the whole army of Rome would be there and they, they would have those, uh, like we talked about, heralds in front of them uh, saying the decrees of Rome, saying the declarations of Rome. And it would really show the might uh, and the strength of Rome and they did that to remind those conquered nations who was in control. And they would actually do this on an annual uh, um, basis over the conquered nations. Once a year, they would have a, a keenly entrance, and Rome would enter that nation and, and kind of flex uh, its muscles to show those people, uh, you know, you better not rebel because here's what you have to deal with if you do. And Israel was one of those nations who were conquered by Rome. And so they were very familiar with the idea of a keenly entrance. They were very familiar with the idea of somebody entering a city that has been conquered and having its army and having declarations be said and having decrees be said to the crowd. They were familiar uh, with that idea. So when Jesus made his triumphant entry, he he made um, some declarations as well because really there are three things that uh, when there, a keenly entrance takes place, when Rome did it, there was three things that they were trying to get across to the conquered nation. The first thing that they were trying to communicate was the authority of the king. They were communicating to that nation the authority and the power of the king, of the power of Caesar. The next thing they wanted to communicate to that conquered nation was the strength of their army. That's why they would have an army following them and, an, uh, and generals preceding them. They, wa they wanted that conquered nation to see the strength 
of Rome. And finally, the third thing that they wanted to accomplish when they had a kingly entrance was to announce the declarations of the king. But when Jesus made his triumphant entry, he made some declarations as well. And, but these declarations that he made changed the course of humanity forever. And what we're going to talk about are the declarations that he made. And we're going to look at what he said. And, and what when we go into Palm Sunday coming up to understand what Jesus was declaring when he made his kingly entrance over 2,000 years ago. We're going to jump back into Luke chapter 19, verse 29. Luke chapter 19, verse 29. It says this, that Jesus was, it says, As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. And he said, go into that village over there, he told them. And he says, as you enter it, you will see a young donkey. Everybody say donkey. He said, you will see a young donkey tied there um, that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, if you're a disciple, you have been following Jesus for close to three years now. And if there's really something you have been waiting for and probably been asking for is saying, Jesus, if you are the king of Jews, of the Jews, if you are the, the true king, when are you going to have your kingly entrance? When are you going to do what Rome does and go into the city and proclaim the strength and the authority that you have? And so imagine now they hear that Jesus has finally decided that he's going to do something that, that kind of replicates what a worldly king would do with that kingly entrance. And so now he's asking for two disciples to go on a mission. And I'm sure those two disciples are like, pick me, pick me, right? Because I'm sure he's going to pick me and I'm going to be one of those uh, people ahead of, of King Jesus, like how they would have generals ahead of King Caesar proclaiming the strength of their king. Or I bet you he's going to make me in some kind of special uh, responsibility. Or I'll bet you he's going to place me somewhere really cool. And he, they get to Jesus, and Jesus said, look, I got a special mission for you, and your mission is to go to the stables and to get a donkey. You can imagine their excitement turned to embarrassment real quickly them saying well I thought I was going to be a part of some high uh, place in this entrance I thought I was going to have some kind of cool role and responsibility where people will see that I'm close to Jesus but but Jesus you're telling me that my role in this entry is to get a donkey Jesus you placed me on donkey duty you placed me on a role and responsibility that I feel is not significant enough. I feel like sometimes we can be following after Jesus and feel like we're on donkey duty. I say, Jesus, why? Right? I think it's sometimes we can even talk ourselves out of the direction from God just because it doesn't meet our expectations that we have. I say, God, I feel you directing me this way, but that feels like donkey duty, right? Now hear me, not donkey's duty, but donkey duty, all right? I want to make myself clear. They both probably could work. But we could be talking ourselves out of the will of God because we feel like it's not significant enough for us. But for some reason, it's significant enough for God. And we can talk ourselves out of different situations in our lives and say, God, I want to, 
I want to follow after you, but this doesn't feel like how I think it should feel. I want to live after, after you, God, but, man, this feels like it's not enough. I want something more. This is too low, and we can talk ourselves out of the direction from God because it doesn't meet our expectations. And we say, this is donkey duty, God. You're giving me some donkey duty. All right, that's the last time I'm going to say it. And you can feel like it's so beneath us. But what those disciples didn't realize is that that donkey that they were retrieving would be the very donkey that Jesus would ride upon into Jerusalem. And if they were disobedient, okay, this is the last time. If they were disobedient on their donkey duty, Jesus would not have entered the city the way he was supposed to. But they were obedient in what maybe people would have said, that's below me. But they were obedient, even though it seemed insignificant. If you're taking notes, write this down. The size of your assignment never determines the significance of your impact. The size of your assignment never determines the significance of your impact. That just because it seems small, that doesn't mean that it's in significant or not important or it's not going to make a difference. Let me tell you this. If Jesus is instructing you to do it, it's important. If God is telling you to call out so-and-so and say, hey, how are you doing? It's important. If God is telling you, hey, I know you've had a long day, but just pray for five minutes, it's important. Matter of fact, I would even go out on a limb and say it's the small things that we do that make the biggest difference. It's the small things that we do that seem so insignificant, that seem like, oh, it's not, it's not big enough. It's the small things that we do every day consistently that makes the biggest difference. I would say even sometimes we can try to make things too big. I remember when I really first got serious about Jesus, I was like, God, I'm going to read the whole Bible in like a week. Watch me do it, right? I'm going to make it happen. But God said, I don't... I don't want you to try it and go full speed right away, but learn how to walk. Learn how to do the small things right. Start with one verse a day, Caleb. Don't read the whole Bible in one day because you're not going to remember it. Matter of fact, if you just do the small things consistently, hey, start with five minutes of prayer a day and then work to 10 and then 15. But don't start with a two-hour prayer and a three-day fast. Or you're going to be burned out. But do the small things first, consistently. And I believe that God gives us those things in our lives, not because he thinks that we are insignificant, but because he knows how important the small things are. He knows how important it is just to pray each and every day. It doesn't have to be long. You don't have to use a vocabulary you never even said in your life. No, you just have to say, God, let me talk to you for five minutes a day. If you do that each and every day, I'm telling you, you're going to grow closer to God. If you do the small things right, consistently, you're going to find yourself stronger than you were before. But you want to know why we all as Christians and myself, why we have so much confidence that Jesus is the promised Messiah? You ever wondered about that? Why are we so confident about who Jesus is and why are we so confident that he's the Messiah? And it's not just because Jesus said he was the Messiah. Many people before Jesus and after Jesus 
has said they're the Messiah. It's not just because others said that he was the Messiah. If you look back in, in history, there were, there were many people who claimed to be the Messiah. But why do we have so much confidence that Jesus is the promised Messiah? Because he fulfilled every prophecy made about him all throughout the Old Testament. There were 324 prophecies throughout the Old Testament made about the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled every single one. Now look, three or four is a coincidence, but 324, that's God, all right? You can't convince me otherwise. He met every single expectation. He met every single prophecy, everything that was written 400 years before his birth, he met it, and he met every prophecy that was ever spoken about him. And that is why we have so much confidence in him. I wanted to real quickly, just because I think it's really cool, but we're going to have, there's this 10 prophecies. That's, if you can take a picture of it with your phone, and we're going to move on real quickly. But study this on your own, because if there's something that will build your confidence, is when you study about God and what they prophesied about the Messiah and then you read about Jesus living that what they prophesied about. Throughout this it says the Messiah uh, would, to, would to be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5 2. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be preceded by a messenger who would be John the, bapti uh, the baptizer uh, and that was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 3. It was said that Messiah, the Messiah was going to be betrayed by a friend in Psalms 41, that was fulfilled in Matthew 10. It was said that the Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah 11. And that was fulfilled in Matthew 26. It was said that Messiah would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7. And that was fulfilled in Matthew 1. It was said that the Messiah would be silent before his accusers, prophesied in Isaiah 53. And that was fulfilled in Matthew 27. It said the Messiah would be executed by crucifixion by, his, by having his hands and feet pierced in Psalms 22. And that was fulfilled in John 19, 28. It said the Messiah would be executed without having a, a bone broken. That was uh, prophesied in Exodus 12 and fulfilled in John chapter 19. A couple more. The Messiah uh, was prophesied to be executed by crucifixion as a thief would have been. In Psalms 22, Zechariah 12, Isaiah 53, and that was fulfilled in Luke 23 and John 20. And finally, said the Messiah was prophesied to be raised from the dead in Isaiah 53, in Psalms 2 and 16, and that was fulfilled in Matthew 28. Come on, who's confident to know that we are serving the promised Messiah? So the next time anybody comes up to you and tries to convince you that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, you can say, look, you can say this, hey, you have the right to believe that, but you can't deny that. You can't deny that Jesus is the Messiah because look at all the prophecies that he met. Look at all what was said about him that he fulfilled. So when Jesus chose to disciples to go and retrieve a donkey he wasn't this speaking out of impulse he was speaking out of intention matter of fact Jesus chose that donkey to make a declaration I almost called and Haley helped me this is why you have a wife I almost called this sermon uh the declaration of a donkey and uh and Haley was like don't say that I was like, okay um and then she, she helped me 
Well, that's why, that's why she, that's why you, right, husbands, we have wives, right? So we don't be dumb. Amen. But Jesus was very intentional when he said, go get me a donkey. He wasn't saying it because he was like, donkeys are cheap, you know. He wasn't saying it because he was like, hey, you know, it's the closest animal to us. No, he was intentional about it because he was making a declaration. He was fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. This was written about the Messiah 400 years ago before this moment, and it says this. It says, rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey. Everybody say donkey. Riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey's colt. You see, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, and it wasn't because he thought horses was expensive. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and it wasn't because he dislikes donkeys more than horses. No, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey because he was making a declaration, and he was saying this. He was saying, I am the one that the prophets talked about. I am the one that has been prophesied to come. I am the Messiah. I am the King of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I am the one to bring freedom to Zion. I I am the one that's going to break the chains of sin. I am the one that's going to resurrect it. I am the one. He was making a declaration. The first declaration for tonight is this, is that Jesus declared himself the Messiah. When he went into Jerusalem, he declared himself the Messiah. Everybody knew about the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. Everybody knew what he was saying and declaring when he said, hey, don't give me that horse. Go get that lowly donkey because I'm about to declare something to Jerusalem. I'm about to declare something to the world, and that's I am the promised Messiah. See, in the same way that a Roman king would enter into a defeated city and in a way to come in and to show his authority and his identity and to show his triumph, Jesus went into Jerusalem to show his deity, to show that I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. Now it is time on this, this five days before he would go to the cross, him telling everybody in Jerusalem, I am the one that was prophesied about. I am the one that Zechariah mentioned. I am the one that Isaiah talked about. I am the one that David wrote about. I am the one. Come on, turn to your name and say, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. As we continue to Luke chapter 19, verse 35, it says, So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. And as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments. Everybody say garments. Spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. You see, this was customary for people to do. When an incoming king was on his way, they would throw their garments in front of him. They probably did that for the Roman rulers who came. It, it was a, they, that was a, a traditional thing to do. It was almost like a 2,000-year-old red carpet, right? They would just throw their clothes in front of him. And that was a way to honor the coming king. And see, the people of Israel, the people who were really waiting on Jesus and wanting him to be the, the promised king, they, they really had an idea of who they thought Jesus would be. 
You see, they wanted Jesus to enter into Jerusalem as the king to come and save them from Roman rule. As the king to lead them into a political revolution. As the king to lead them into a way to break the chains of Rome over Israel and to restore their former glory. See, what they wanted out of Jesus was for him to restore what David and Solomon had. What they wanted out of Jesus was for, for, the, for him to restore the, 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 what Pastor Bobby said a couple weeks ago, the good old times, right? What they wanted Jesus to restore was the old. They wanted Jesus to come and make Israel a renowned nation again. Not, not, some, not a nation that has been defeated by Rome, but a nation that is feared by the world. They wanted Jesus to free them from Roman rule. But Jesus did not come with a political agenda. He came with an eternal one. And he said this. He said, I am not going to Jerusalem to free you from Caesar. I, I'm on my way to declare and to free you from your sin. To free you from what is holding you down in your soul. To free you from what you can't be freed from yourself. I'm not here to free you from a person. I'm not here, you, here to free you from a nation. Those are small things. I'm here to free you from what is really holding you down. And that's sin and rebellion. And that's what is causing your, your souls to sink. But I'm here to free you from that. See, we serve a God that doesn't want us to desire for the old. And want us to say, oh, God, just bring the, the old back. Or remember how it used to be. We serve a God who is ready to lead us into the future. To lead us into the best days that are yet to come. To lead us into the next. And that's what Jesus was doing. He said, hey, get ready because I'm not going to restore what David had. I'm going to bring you something better. I'm not going to restore what Solomon had. I'm going to bring you something better. I'm not here to free you from Caesar. I'm here to free you from sin and to deliver you not a kingdom that earthly hands built, but a kingdom whose maker and builder was God. And when the people were waiting for Jesus to pass by, I can just see them so excited to see Jesus, waiting for him to approach. And then I can see those people who were expecting a revolution, who were, was respect, expecting a, Jesus to come in ready to defeat the Roman army. I can see their, their hearts sink when they see Jesus riding on a donkey. Because traditionally, when a king would enter a, a city... If he had war on his heart, he would enter the city on a chariot, on a battle horse, saying, hey, we're about to take down the enemy. Hey, we're about to go into war. But Jesus came in on a donkey. And what's significant about that is that the only time a king would enter a city on a donkey would be when it was peacetime. Everybody say peacetime. When it was time of peace, not war. Not violence, but when it was a time of peace. So I can see them looking at Jesus entering the city on a donkey and saying, we're not going to get that revolution of politics like I thought. We're not going to get that Jesus coming in and leading a rebellion against Rome. No, Jesus is coming to make peace. See, Jesus is riding on a donkey to show that he wasn't here to war against flesh and blood, but that he was here to bring peace to the world. In Zechariah 9.10, the following verse, prophesying about the Messiah, it says this. It says, I remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons. Everybody say weapons. 
I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. See, that should make somebody excited because God was saying this, the peace that I'm going to achieve is not going to be won through swords and spears. The peace that is going to be achieved is not going to be won by chariots and horses. The peace that's going to be achieved is going to be for all nations, and it's going to be done through a king who doesn't even need to pick up a sword. What Jesus was saying when he entered Jerusalem on the donkey, he was saying, I'm not here just to bring peace to Jerusalem. I'm here to bring peace to the world, to the nations, the scripture says. And that's the second point that Jesus declared peace to the nations. Jesus declared peace to the nations. Jesus said, I'm here not just to bring peace to Jerusalem or Israel or to the Jewish nation. No, I'm here to bring peace to the world. I'm not here just for a certain race or nationality. I'm here for humanity. I'm here to break the bondage that all man is under. I'm here to break the curse that all man has fallen under. I'm here to free the people of the world, to bring peace to the nations. See, before Jesus... We were all under imprisonment of fear and death. We were all under imprisonment of sin and rebellion. We all didn't have a choice. It says we were born into sin. We couldn't even choose righteousness. But righteousness chose us. He said, I'm going to go into Jerusalem. And I'm not going to be riding a chariot. I'm not going to be trying to show that I'm here for political reasons. But I'm going to be riding a donkey to show I'm here for peace, and not just for Israel, but for the world. I'm here to bring peace to every man. I'm here to bring peace to every nation. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, hey, that's you. Come on, turn to your second choice and say, hey, that's you too. You lucked out. Luke chapter 19, verse 38. We're almost done. They said, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And Jesus replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into chairs. See, the people were proclaiming Jesus as their king. They were proclaiming him as the most highest seat and authority. They were proclaiming him as the promised Messiah, and they were giving him praise, and they said, this is the true king, and they began to sing out to him, and the Pharisees were upset, and they were offended by the people giving Jesus praise. You want to know what's the greatest way to make the enemy upset and to offend the devil? Give Jesus praise. The greatest way you can upset the enemy is say, Jesus, hallowed be your name. Jesus, you are the Lord and Savior of my life. Jesus, you are the King of kings. You are the true Messiah. You really want to know how you want to offend the devil like the Pharisees were offended? They said, I'm offended. It's when you give Jesus praise even when things aren't going your way. 
You see, the enemy sometimes can see things and problems in your life and says, oh, these problems will take their praise. These, 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 these bad days or, or these low days or, or things not going to corner plan, man, that will steal their praise. But when you say, God, I'm going to give you praise no matter the day. I'm going to give you praise no matter the problems. I'm going to give you praise even when I feel under pressure and under weight from the world. You want to offend the devil, give him praise even when you don't feel like it. Give Jesus praise even when it doesn't feel like you should. Give Jesus praise even when you feel like you're under the weight of the world. That's going to offend the enemy. And he's going to say this. Please make him stop. <laughs> like the Pharisee said. Make him stop. And Jesus said no. Because see in the past, if you read the life of Jesus, many times throughout scripture, Jesus almost would tell people, hey, don't, don't, don't spread my clout right now, all right? Right? Like he healed a leper one time. He said, hey, you're healed, but don't tell nobody about it. Don't tell them about me. Don't tell nobody. One time he, he, told, he circled his disciples around him, and he revealed to his disciples that he was the Messiah. But right after that, he said, but what I share with you, don't share with nobody else. Even one time he told, he told a bunch of demons that he just casted out. He said, I cast you out, but don't tell your buddies about me. And that, you know, right there that just shows me that the enemy's not all-knowing. He said other demons didn't even know that he was who he was. Only God's all-knowing. But Jesus, early in his ministry, he, he, was, he was almost saying, hey, I, I, Scripture said it was, wasn't ready yet for him to be proclaimed publicly as the Messiah and as the king. He would keep the word. He, he'd keep it on a down low. He'd heal somebody say, keep it on a DL. Right? But this time, it was different. They began to praise the name of Jesus publicly. They began to praise him as the king of Israel publicly. They began to say, this is the promised Messiah. And I'm sure his Pharisees was like, hey, can you shut him up and tell him not to like you have or, told him or tell him not to spread the word? He said, no. Because if they were to stop, creation would shout. If they were to stop, he began to say what Psalm said. He said that the seeds would begin to sing praises out to God. He said the, the flowers and the harvest would begin to sing praises out to God. Why? Because now was his time. Now was his kingly entrance. Now was the time where Jesus was declaring, I am here now. This is what I'm doing. And I'm here to save everybody, not just Israel. I'm here to break sin and death and disease and everything from the pits of hell. I'm here to break it. And I'm not going to tell them to stop because the rocks will begin to shout. It says when Jesus told them that, John chapter 12, verse 19, when Jesus told the Pharisees that, they looked at each other and they said, and he says this, there's nothing we can do now. They look, everyone has gone after him. What Jesus was declaring, point three for tonight, Jesus was declaring his kingdom. Jesus was saying, this is my kingdom now. All you who proclaim me as king, you are now the citizens of the kingdom. All you who are singing me praises and who know who I am and who have repentance in their heart. All you, you are now a part of my kingdom. I have declared my kingdom here on earth. And everybody who calls upon my name will be saved. 
and we'll be a part of that kingdom. See, what Jesus was saying when he told the Pharisees, hey, I ain't telling them to be quiet. What he was saying is, hey, now it's my turn. My kingdom is here now. I have entered here now. And people who call upon my name, now they're a part of my name. Now they're a citizen of my kingdom. Because really, what makes you a citizen of a king is when you give him praise and say, you are the true king. Here on earth, we're part of a government. But we know who the king is. And that makes us a citizen of his kingdom. And when those people begin to proclaim him as king, as the promised Messiah, when they began to say, hallowed be your name, it was the creation right there. The kingdom began to swell. And the kingdom and the Pharisees said, what are we going to do now? Because now they see who the king is. See, Jesus declared his kingdom in that moment, entering in Jerusalem, even knowing that five days later he was going to go to the cross. What amazes me about Jesus is that he knew, even while they were singing his praises, that they were soon going to be rebuking him. Jesus knew that even while the people were saying, hallowed be your name, were the same people were saying, crucify him, crucify him. But he still said, I'm here for you. Even if you're not here for me. Because i, I got to be honest, I'm sure there were some people who were saying, hey, what can I get from you, Jesus? I'm not here for you. I'm here for what you can give me. But he said, even if you're not really here for me, I'm here for you. And even though... People can be fickle and they'll be for you one moment and be calling for Barabbas the next. I'm still here for you. And he went to the cross. And he even says, and I can picture it right now, that as he was going through that triumphal entry, he was passing the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. The same place to where he will soon go right before his execution, right before he will be betrayed by, by Judas. Him knowing what was on the way, and even though he knew what was on the way, he still went forward. He still knew that humanity was worth it. He still knew that even though people would betray him and forsake him, that he would never forsake us. And that's what the message of Jesus is about. Is that even if we are imperfect because we are, even if we make mistakes because we do, even if we do all the wrong things sometimes because we will, Jesus will say, I'm still coming for you. I could turn my back. I could say, I'm going to Nazareth, not Jerusalem. You know, I'm still coming to you. Even though you're going to be the same people who are going to betray me. And that's the message that we have in the name of Jesus. Can you stand to your feet tonight? I'm closing. See, it was, it was customary for when a Roman ruler would go into a conquered foreign nation, that they would make that kingly entrance and they would show their strength and they would show the strength of their army and make their decrees of their king. But what they would do at the end is that they would go to the temple of that nation, of that city, whatever it was, and they would make sacrifices to that nation's God. Really showing 
those religious leaders in that city that, hey, I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm aligned with you. I, I agree with you. But do you know, want to know what Jesus did when he got into Jerusalem? Mark chapter eleven fifteen. When he made his way into Jerusalem and he entered the temple just like how a Roman ruler would. He entered the temple and he began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. And it says he knocked over the tables of the money changers and the, and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. And he said to them, the scriptures declare that my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Come on, someone say all nations. And my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus went into their religious things that they had going on that was breaking the mandates that God made and saw the people who were taking advantage of others and saw them using the temple as a place to make money and as a place to cheat people and as a place to take advantage of those making sacrifices to God. He said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And you have made it to a den of thieves. And if you look into what a den of thieves is, it's where people who are criminals hide. That's what a den of thieves is. Where people who have stolen or did a crime, that's where they go to hide. And what he was saying is this, is you are now using religion as a way to hide your sin. You are now using my temple. That was meant for prayer. That was meant for God and man to commune together. You're now using it to hide your sin. These religious leaders and Pharisees thinking that their righteousness was going to save them, thinking that their routines and their rituals and their religion is what made them holy. He said, no, you're masking religion and you're using your sin to hide it. But he came into that place, came into the temple. And he began to change things how it should be. Because Jesus did, well, he did come to declare war. But he did not come to declare a war on people. He did not come to declare a war on politics, on Rome, on Caesar. He came to declare a war on sin. And he said, I'm calling, I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out, sin. I'm not going to allow this temple be a place where sin is hidden. I'm not going to be allowed religion pull people away from God, but I'm going to restore what this house was meant to be, a house of prayer. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, and this is what Paul was referring to. He said, then when you when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 
For sin, everybody say sin. Sin is the steam that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. He said that religion was giving sin its power. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Come on, give Jesus a shout of praise if you have victory in his name. I want to close with this thought. That Jesus declared war on sin. And our victory is through him. Jesus came in and he was making a declaration of war. He was saying, I'm coming to remove the stain of sin. I'm coming to remove the stain of death. I'm coming, I'm coming to remove what man failed to do through religion and through the old. I'm coming to make a way. I'm coming to make sure that no longer do we have to rely on animal sacrifices. No longer do we have to rely on systems and routines. No longer do we have to rely on those things. All you have to rely on now is me. And I will give you your victory. I will fight on your behalf. And like Zacharias said, it won't be with swords and spears and horses and chariots, but through the words of his mouth and authority that he has in his blood and being the son of God. That is what gave us our victory. I want every head bowed, eyes closed. Right now, I just want us to begin to lead into his presence. I feel his anointing in this atmosphere and weighing us, weighing on us. Just say, Father, let us not try to fight our own battles. Let us not try to rely on our old past of religious or routines. But God, we are made holy by the blood. We are made righteous through you, Jesus. So, Father, right now, we thank you for every person under the sound of my voice. We thank you, Jesus, God, that you are restoring, God, what was lost. And that, Father, right now, God, if there's anybody who hasn't said yes to your name, right now in their own way, they're saying yes to you. They're saying, Jesus, fight on my behalf. I can't win this battle. Jesus, God, fight what spears and swords can't overcome. Jesus, intercede and come in between, Father. Bridge the gap. God, make up the difference, Father. Pay the price I can't afford, God. And let us not ever, God, get over the fact, Father, of what your faithfulness produces in our lives, Father. Let us not over, God, overlook, God, what you have done in our lives, Father. But what you have done for us is a firm foundation for victory in your name each and every day. And Jesus, we thank you for what you're doing tonight. Father, if there's anybody struggling, God, with anxiety, God, about the future, if there's anybody struggling, God, with their identity, maybe they feel like those disciples who are given a small task, maybe they, they feel like they don't have that peace that, Jesus, you were bringing or that victory, God, that you've guaranteed. Father, right now, God, begin to encourage every person, Father. Right now, Father, begin, God, to uplift every broken spirit. Right now, Jesus. God, begin to have your way in this atmosphere, God. And as we begin to sing together, let's bring praises to your name. Let's offend the devil tonight. God, let's upset the enemy. And let's begin to praise the name of Jesus. Let's begin to bring, God, praises to your name. Come on, let's sing together. 
Thank you for listening to today's message. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. For more information about who we are, visit RiversideChurchTX.com.